You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. I have been a surfer since even before I can remember. One day, I rode one of the biggest waves and wiped out on it. I never knew there was such a fear. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Tai Singh. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me back. On this special episode of the Projection Booth, we are looking at the 2018 film from writer, director, actor, etc., Douglas Burke, Surfer, Teen Confronts Fear. It's the story of the titular surfer, played by Sage Burke, and how he confronts fear. Yeah. So we'll discuss the story as it is, uh, how it plays out, and yes, we'll be getting into spoilers, though I don't really think that that matters. So Ty, as this is a relatively new film, I'm not going to ask you when you first saw it, but when you first heard about it, and what were your initial impressions when you first saw it? I was in L.A. a few months ago, and I met David J. Moore, author of The Good, The Tough, and The Deadly. Uh, so he's written books on various action films, including one on uh, post-apocalyptic action films. And he knew that I ran the Bristol Bad Film Club here in the UK. And he was like, have you heard of this film, Surfer Team Confronts Fear? It reminded, I think I'd read an article or seen an article about how it was this Christian faith film and it was meant to be the new room. But to be honest, I, that, that's a label that's been bandied around a lot. So... I said, I've, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. He was like, I know how I can get you a screener. I think he's involved in the marketing. He sent me it. That night, I watched it in my Airbnb. And I think I emailed him back like the next day. I was like, right, I'm on board. I want to do a screening of this in the UK. How, how do I do this? And that was it. My impressions of it were that this is kind of one of those films why the Bad Film Club exists. It's it's someone's unfiltered and unedited creative vision put on the screen for all to see. He clearly has something important to say. Mr. Douglas Burke, like you said, the writer, director, actor, producer, screenwriter, and composer. What he has to say is a little bit confusing, but what it's clear is his son is a great surfer because you see enough of that footage to hammer that point home. Yes, there are long, extended sequences of sage surfing. That is 100% true. So much surfing. I think for the Bad Film Club listing, I said, Surfer Team Confronts Fear is to surfing what the room is to sweeping footage of San Francisco. Never ending. I don't know how I first heard about this film, but when I was approached to cover it, I knew the title immediately. For some reason, sometimes it shows up as surfer colon teen confronts fear, and then sometimes it shows up as surfer copyright mark. Yes, teen confronts <laughs> confronts fear. 
I've also just seen it described as Surfer. So, yeah. Maybe when they do the sequel, it will be Surfer colon something else. But for now, we just have the one film to deal with. Can you imagine a sequel? This is the thing. The thing about Surfer Team Confronts Fear is it clearly took several years to make. I know you've interviewed Douglas Burke. I've also spoken to the man himself. His insight is fascinating. Yeah, I think he feels like he has a lot to say about fear overcoming that. And then clearly something he has against the military, which is hinted at in the film's third act. Is that there is so much going on in this film that to kind of give a brief synopsis doesn't do it justice. This film really, to me, clearly breaks down into three big chunks. And the first chunk is the longest one being, I think, about 49 minutes long. And that is pretty much a one-on-one conversation between Doug and Sage, all taking place pretty much in one location by the beach. I'm guessing that this was filmed MOS. I mean, it's really clean sound. Yes. I think he said a lot of ADR was done, which is bold because that is clearly a film of two halves, and the first half contains a 12-minute long monologue that's uncut of Douglas Burke just talking about fear and overcoming fear to his son. And you can tell it's a single take because he stumbles over a few words and it feels like it's going on forever. Uh, I mean that with the greatest of respect because not many actors would choose to do a 12-minute take and, and I think there's a reason for that. So it starts with Sage fishing, cutting up his bait, this squid, which I guess is foretelling what we're about to experience. He's out there fishing by the beach, and he rescues this guy who's in a wetsuit and pulls him up, and the man claims that he's his father. Though I think he said that his, well, he says that his father's dead, and I'm not sure how much he remembers of his father, but then his father eventually convinces him that he's his dad by uh, having him recite this poem, which he had recited when he was younger. And then we cut to a scene of young Sage. It is actually Sage as well. So that's amazing. It's clearly Sage like seven years earlier or something. So Douglas has clearly had this film or been planning this film for a while. Yeah, it's remarkable that this has been shooting for so long. And uh, like you said, we'll hear from uh, Doug Burke later on, and he'll talk about how long he had been making this and how he'd been filming Sage surfing for all of these years and then kind of found a story to go around that. This incarnation of Doug Burke is not actually human. He's made out of squid and electricity, and I guess he's been kind of sent from... I don't want to say the afterworld because there's a big twist coming up. I'm glad I said spoilers, but Doug is actually not dead in this film. He's in this catatonic state. So maybe he's like kind of sending his himself. Oh, yeah. Like he's projecting. Yeah. Like an astral projection. But then there is that kind of thing about the afterlife. Like he he's made up. It, he is kind of appearing like an angel. Like this is some sort of it's a wonderful life. You know, he's here to teach Sage about, you know, how how life is better with him here and everything. Uh, Film's faith influence, you know, it it wears its Christian morality heavily on its sleeve. 
So I think that kind of whole angel uh, analogy is clearly there to be seen. And then the film's third act kind of does away with it somewhat in a way that doesn't make sense. There's a lot of things that don't make sense or don't add up or don't come back. Things like a sea lion spirit entered into Sage when Sage was drowning and the sea lion saved his life. And I would think like that might come back, but it doesn't. No, it's, it's, it's very weird. And it's clearly a film that was kind of trying to get as much production value where it can, because some of the scenes look very cheap. There's one shot between an admiral and a doctor against a horrible green screen. And then there's another scene where Douglas clearly found a dead whale washed up on the beach and was like, we have got to use this. And just there's a random scene with a dead whale. Though they kind of presage the whale with some of the dialogue that they're having in the earlier scene. So it doesn't doesn't strike you as too weird, except that I have to ask, and I'm not trying to be catty or anything, but is that Doug talking to Sage with the whale scene? I think so. Yeah, it is. But he's changed a lot. One reviewer described him as looking like Richard Lewis and having uh, acting like Robin Williams when he's doing a Billy Graham impersonation. And I can kind of see that, especially the Richard Lewis part, especially when the squid and electricity are breaking down and he's going through some, some pain. Even though he's not supposed to feel anything, he's going through some pain and we've got squidding coming out of his mouth. He reminds me a lot of Lewis from like when he was doing stand-up in the 80s. Stuff I made out of for a few hours wasn't supposed to be able to feel. Damn them! They didn't say! They didn't say I'd feel! Only communicate to you that was the deal! I wasn't supposed to feel. You okay? Alright. Okay, boy. It's also interesting to know that Douglas Burke is also a physics professor. So this whole kind of electricity and squid material thing, it's kind of, is this, you know, where where does this come from? Is it something that he's read about? And in my interview with him, I did kind of question, question him on this. Did, did he say anything to, uh, to you about it? No, but I've read him talking about how squids are... It might have been a world where squids were the ones who evolved rather than people. So squids are very important when it comes to evolution for him. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. There's so much going on. And again, I can't stress this enough to anyone who's thinking about watching it. There is a lot of surfing. Not just filmed home videos of surfing, just photos. Just photos of sage surfing. It's, uh, it, it's crazy. I have to say, though, that some of the surfing footage looks really good. Yeah, it, I mean, he's clearly uh, stood on the shore filming it. You can't quite, out, quite make out that it is Sage, but yeah, no, the surfing's incredible. And there's a couple shots that, I don't know if they're drone shots or what, but when they're on the beach, the camera pulls out from them and goes out over the water, and that actually looks really good as well. So you get those... Shots that look very high-quality production, but then, yeah, you get those weird green screen things or the second act of the film, which takes place in what looks like a rented storefront. And, I mean, it's kind of like public access type quality. The the nature, the, the like, the duality of, like, good production value and bad production value 
can be summed up by just looking at the film's trailer. It's a very quickly edited, quite slick trailer, which kind of builds up the film as like being some sort of thriller about fear in the military. And then strong is just spelled incorrectly in the middle of it. I didn't even notice that. See, I've clearly watched it too many times now. I, I, I picked up on that. I was like, oh, I wanted to mention it to Douglas Burke, but I think it's just been out there now for too long. Yeah, I didn't want to ruin anything for me, so I've only watched the trailer the one time. Oh, the trailer doesn't tell you anything. It's just like a montage of clips set to the most dramatic music ever. Yeah, he really does play up the military intrigue, which is not really there. So there's a scene where uh, Douglas Burke, no, Sage, is talking to a guy who looks just like Mark Rylance, and uh, not Mark Rylance talks about how there was you know, this man who kind of guided uh, a missile towards uh, an enemy ship and blew it up, uh, you know, as if he's telling like a real life war story. And when I spoke to Douglas Burke, I was like, is this based on anyone in your family? Because in the credits, there is an acknowledgement to another Burke who looks like he served. I think it has some military rank uh, associated with his name. So I asked him about this, and he was very kind of coy, like, um, sort of, but I can't really talk about it. I think it's something to do with his father. So I think Douglas Burke does have some issue with the Navy or the U.S. military in some regard, and is, like, hinting at something. I'm just not sure what. Well, he does talk to me about his father being in the military and him growing up, I want to say around Tahiti or something. No, Micronesia and his father serving in the Navy. So, yeah, he definitely has some contact with that. But, and I mean, these military scenes. So after 49 minutes of this very motivational speech that Doug is giving to his son, and that's when we have the break to talk about the whale and we get the story of Joan and these kind of things. Then we move into the second act, which is this whole military thing where we have um, Doug has given to Sage this uh, code to take to this doctor that uh, works at the, for the Navy, goes there tries to get in but there's this very long scene of these two guys who are in their civvies apparently and they're talking to uh, a guy who's in his uniform and there's a secretary there that's keeping sage out of this installation i say installation though i said like it looks like a storefront and the interactions between the guy in the uniform and the two guys in their civvies at one point I'm looking at this and I'm just thinking that it looks like a Marx Brothers skit, especially when they're synchronizing their watches. And I have no idea what they're doing. I mean, this feels like it's right out of Duck Soup or something. This is kind of another indication of the quality of the film, that he's clearly dragged these actors out of a local theater group. None of them are comfortable in front of the camera. Um, I think there's a young military officer who's probably the best actor there, but he's dining up to like 11 while everyone else is very subdued. It's like everyone is in a different film and everyone is taking the stakes very differently. Okay, gentlemen, we'll post the thread 90 seconds from go. Search your area for any bogeys in the air or land. Look out for any bandit drones, in particular, any sudden movement when we post the phone. Sync your watches. 21, 22, 23. We ready? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Take it to the limit. Go. The 
exam that we see the doctor giving to this old lady is probably my favorite part of the movie because it just looks like she thinks he's going to rape her or something. And she's got this wild look in her eyes. And I just keep waiting for her to freak out the whole time. It's not the only awkward uh, moment in this. Douglas Burke's portrayal of someone who appears to be mentally handicapped is ha- is awkward to watch. <laughs> it's crazy. He's just in a wheelchair pulling a stupid face. It, this is not going to, to win any awards from uh, hospices or, or, or any medical groups anytime soon for its portrayal of handicapped people. Yeah, this was, like, worse than Awakenings. I mean, it was really very, very awkward. It's kind of the performance you'd expect from a Tommy Wiseau of uh, portraying someone in that condition. It it seemed very, very on the nose and very ill-informed and ill-advised. Do we ever get the background why he's in this wheelchair, why he's in this catatonic state? I think that's the backstory that Mark Rylance is hinting towards, that he was doing something incredibly brave, he was injured as a result, and, you know, the government just buried it. But he's really alive and, you know, not dead as Sage has been led to believe all this time. Yeah, there is that discussion between the Admiral and the Doctor in front of that green screen. Battleship, where a seagull just swoops towards the camera. Ah, it's, it's wonderful. They're talking about how they, I think it's supposed to be that they gave him new fingerprints, but they say they cut off his fingers. <laughs> First, we make him an any mouse, ghost assassin, so he can kill without consequence. We surgically remove his fingertips. We give him new teeth and we arrange electronically so that he doesn't exist anymore, etc., etc., etc. And after a while, he goes nuts and into a catatonic state for a decade. So we arrange for him to get a new identity so he can get health care. And now there's a long lost son and you want me to arrange another new identity and he's going to die. And when he dies, you want the son to get health care and life insurance. Banks, are you out of your mind? You're going to have me back on some bird farm in the middle of the Mediterranean off bump up Egypt with my elbows and my butt towards the moon, swabbing the deck as an ensign second class. Hennessy, very special cognac. Type favors. All right, I asked for two things. DNA mm. and proof that the storm predictions he had in the dream 10 weeks ago yes. were accurate. There were two storms, I believe. Yes, there were. For a film that's kind of been in production for so long, it's one of those films where you're like, you know, just maybe a second, second draft of the script or, you know, another pair of eyes on it could have ironed out a lot of these questions, but... You know what? This is why we, we love these films so much. Like you said, this is a very pure vision coming from one man's mind. Yes. Yes, it is. And then, yeah, once we get out of this section, we pretty much go back to surfing. There's a, like a little bit of a break where Sage is talking with his friends, and they're, again, cutting up squid and fishing. and Squid and having a barbecue and... And how many times do we hear the song Go It Alone? At least twice. We get a great montage right in the middle of the movie. Where he's getting his uh, new surfboard made. Yeah, the fast motion surfboard scene. Any movie with a fast motion scene is definitely one to watch. Yeah, it's uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, 
also, it kind of hints that he's about to go on a international trip of all the surfing spots around the world. And I think he just goes to the beach. I mean, there's, there's no indication he's in Asia or anything like that. And he says that he's going to take his dad with him, I think, too. And I kept waiting for an amazing shot. <laughs> shot of, like, the guy in the wheelchair just on a beach. <laughs> Doing the face and the arm. Yeah, or, or Squid Father rising out of the sea like Angelina Jolie at the end of Beowulf or something, but nothing. Nothing like that. Or Sharky and Cabin Boy. <laughs> I'd like to say I'm probably the first person to mention that Beowulf film in 10 years. I'm sure everyone has forgotten it. I saw somebody on Twitter. It might have been you talking about it how much it me. <laughs> so I'm watching it. It's Christmas time. It's set in the snow. For some reason, I really enjoy this film. It's so violent for what it is. It's incredible. And then, yeah, it is a lot of surfing. I mean, have you watched this with an audience yet? No. So we're having the UK premiere on the 23rd of January at the Bristol Improv Theatre. I watched it by myself, and I had had a few drinks. And I think I made the right decision in deciding to do a public screening of it. But with all the articles about it, I posted the article saying, you know, is this Christian faith on the new room? And the reaction was kind of like, oh, you have to show this film. We, we are very, very curious about it. So Bristol has brought this on itself. It's sold out already. So, yeah, we're all good to go from our point of view. Let's go ahead and take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with surfers auteur Douglas Burke. The second is with singer-songwriter Carol Connors. And we'll be back with both of those after these brief messages. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 4. The Robin of Sherwood Method. Remove the character from the scripts and replace him with an entirely similar character. Create a highly elaborate scenario that puts the new character into the same situation as the original. The transition is completed when the replacement character adopts the same name as his predecessor. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast at www britishinvaders.com They're a movie podcast where very serious people talk about very serious things, analysing them like true professional critics in a very serious way. There are also podcasts where drunk or high youngins talk excitedly over each other about the latest pop culture stuff, dropping references and opinions like they were drugged up skunks. But what if you want both? What about if you want a movie review podcast and website that has a sense of humor, mad songs and weird guests, but also reviews movies with a passion and reference not seen since Mrs. Penelope Thigh's public access movie Rama show just out of Duluth in 1987? Well, now you can. At no extra cost and with no unnecessary bowel misplacement, it's the After Movie Diner podcast. Available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher and AfterMovieDiner.com. As sponsored by Titty Headlines, Movie Sanctuary and Facial Massage, please take exit 37 off I-98 and ask for Terrence. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work 
giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. As far as I know, I've never really talked to a physicist before, and I was very curious how you became interested in physics. I was interested in physics from an early age because of lightning. I was intrigued by lightning. When I was young, I was in, in the South Pacific living and, and uh, had experienced you know, thunderstorms and was uh, kind of amazed that during the thunderstorm, you felt really awake. And uh, I, was, I was interested in electricity. It made me interested in electricity and its effect on your body. I was just intrigued by that. Uh, I wasn't originally slated to go to college, but when I, I, I was originally out of high school, a, a brick mason and carpenter. But I, I took one course. I took a math course and then a, and then a philosophy course the first year of working. And then the second year, I took a, a physics course, and then I liked it, but then the, the second physics course was about electricity, and that's when I decided that I wanted to study physics. Where in the South Pacific? Oh, sorry. I was in Micronesia. It's southern middle middle Pacific. It's not not as far as Tahiti, but it, it's back this way a, a bit. So it's about 3,000 miles southwest of Hawaii. Where I was. How did you grow up there? My father was an engineer in radar, and, and he, he ended up out taking us out there because he he was um, involved with radar for the the army and the army the military US military had a trust territory there the US trust territory when I was there now it's an independent country but at the time we were there it was still it was still occupied by the US from World War II really I was very curious how you came to the decision to um, study acting and, and go to uh, the Strasbourg school on the island I lived on there was a, a a kung fu guy at the time he was like number one in the western hemisphere he he took on a couple students i wanted to learn uh, martial arts it was interesting to me he took two students on off the whole island and i, I was one of them. everybody tried out and then I, I studied with him when i was there i just was interested in feeling energy in my body you know and and sports and martial arts and uh how your mind interacts with your body and I was just intrigued by that. Like, you know, in martial arts, you can break, you punch and break boards, and then they, they break cinder blocks and stuff. And I, I was just intrigued by it, you know. So when I came back here, you know, I finished high school. I, I still had a year left. And then I, I just was interested in acting, mainly because of the exchange of energy and the feeling energy in your body when you're acting. It was, neat. It was interesting to me, you know. For your how your mind could affect the way you feel. I, I was always always really it was like a hobby. It was really neat you know, to me. So made you feel so fun to be alive that your mind could affect your body. And when I did 
tried some acting and reading lines to people and felt myself going to another place. And I, it was, it reminded me of doing martial arts when you're working out. You know, you went and sort of escaped your, your mundane things that you had to do. And I just, I just thought, saw it as a, a fun thing to do, you know. Did you ever work in uh, any plays or commercials or anything? It's kind of funny. We went back when I was real young and then flipped back to college already, but that's good. But if you, if you flash forward to college, I was um, studying physics at UC Irvine, and, and then I, I went to uh, a, a Strasbourg class, and um, it was all about memory, and that, that made me want to stay there because um, the memory stuff was really intrigued by and so when I was there, and I was in and out of there for many years, we always did plays, you know, and there's, we'd form, form groups and we'd do plays. And I was in, in a plurality of plays there at the Strasbourg Institute. They have three theaters there. It was like the physics and all, all my schoolwork was my work, and then the acting was fun. It was like my recreation. It was, it was fun to get away from all the thinking and just do stuff with my body, so. So yeah, I was in I was in a bunch of Tennessee Williams plays. I was in the Chekhov plays, William Saloyan play. I was in the Time of Your Life. Yeah, I was in, in a bunch of plays, probably like twenty plays there. Once you graduated, I know that you concentrated more in physics. But did you continue with the acting as something to do for fun? Yeah, I did. I I graduated with my PhD, and then I went into teaching, and I I became a um, a lecturer at Cal State LA, but I still, I still kept acting. I, I had run into people who wanted me to do films, and I thought, yeah, it would be fun. There were early on, like in my, uh, oh, I guess I, when I started teaching college, I was like 25, 26. There were some projects that were were uh, set for me to uh, do film, and but I, I never thought of it like as a career. I just thought, well, yeah, these guys are going to make a movie, and yeah, I'll do it because it, it'll be fun, you know. The, the fellow who was really the spearhead for that had, uh, we got pretty close to starting on some projects. And then he, um, I remember he, I, I was about 28, maybe 29. And he just sort of had a heart attack and died, you know, and th- without that guy, uh, he was the guy that was really, um, had seen me in some plays and had taken to me. And he would, he, he, he had the, the resources and he wanted to direct the films and, it was definitely a situation where the films would have gotten made, but but without him, it was pretty much over, you know? I know your your son, Sage, surfs, and I was curious, with you growing up in Micronesia, is it kind of de rigueur that everyone surfed there? I surfed in California before that, but then out there, there was surfing, but there wasn't surfing right where we lived. There was only a couple places. You had to get in a boat to go surf, so there wasn't that much surfing, but there was a lot of water sports. And then surfing when you could get to um, these certain passes where like a wave would break, but it wasn't right on the island. Um, but, you know, out there in some of the islands, they really are just the rim of a volcano from the ocean floor. And when you're when you're on an atoll like that, the, the there's no like co- gradual continental shelf like um, where where the where the sea floor gradually gets deeper. When you're on an atoll, the, the the islands are really just the rim of the volcano that's sticking out of the water, and so the inside of the volcano is like the lagoon, and then outside that's what they call the ocean side. But when you're on an island structure like 
set as you as you go a, a, away from the land. There's a reef, but then the reef drops off vertically to very deep very quickly. So it doesn't it doesn't provide the ocean floor that that, that where a wave can cavitate and, and grow and and really break properly. But there were places where on other islands within the archipelago where we were that that you could go and surf, and there were places not far away if you had to take a boat to. There's more surfing here in California than there on a on a on a daily basis. It seems like you're a very supportive father as far as uh, Sage and his surfing. Did I read that you take him different places to get different waves and and travel with his surfing? Oh yeah, yeah we. That sort of spawned the movie, really. He was only like two and a half when I pushed him up on his first wave here in Newport Beach. And then um, I'd take him surfing usually, you know, four or five mornings a week. We'd go to the water like just before sunrise, you know, jump in the cold water and surf. But as he started to get better, I yeah, I did. I took him all over the world. And he started to get good. And... He wanted to ride the bigger waves and stuff, and you really need to travel. There are spots in California, but there's like medium-sized waves are a little harder to find. There's good small wave spots, and then when there's swell, there's big wave spots. But like a steady medium-sized wave is hard, kind of hard to find. And so we travel to do that, you know. Where's the best place you've ever been for surfing? It's a loaded question because um, you know it depends on if you're a looking for like real big waves or for a perfectly shaped wave as far as like a perfectly shaped wave that you could ride for a long time that i think bali was was the place where we we were that that, that gave him the longest ride in a, in a wave that you know where he could get inside the tube for a while and come out and then go back inside the tube and stuff and ride for a, a long way so uh, as far as big waves the best big waves that we found, there was really three big wave spots, uh, or four, that we went to. When he was like 12, we were at Waimea Bay, but it, it wasn't really breaking properly in Hawaii. So we never got lucky enough to get that that big wave um, in the movie. At, at 13, when he was 13, there, there was um, the three big wave spots we went to where he, he actually got big waves was, Puerto Escondido, which is down in Oaxaca, Mexico, right here in and near us is um, uh, up by San Francisco. There's Maverick that we went to, and we went there probably like 15 times throughout the course of the movie. His first time he was just 13, and he rode that and and pretty good size. And then uh, the other place is an island nine miles off of Ensenada, Mexico, called Todos Santos Island, and and that. That's the spot that was that we got the the very best looking waves in the movie, you know, the biggest one. All three of those spots, or, or all four of those big wave spots, to give you what you consider might the best waves. You just got to get lucky and be there at the right time, you know. Hawaii is too difficult to get to uh, uh, at spur of the moment. So the the really the best waves we, he got were right here off off of Ensenada, because that's only a few hours, like three-hour drive for us. There's been a long history of surfing in movies. I mean, The Endless Summer, Big Wednesday, all the surf movies with Frankie and Annette, etc. And I'm curious, were you a fan of those films before you decided to make your own? 
I, I wasn't particularly a fan of those real old ones, like the the ones from the 50s. I, I did like Endless Summer. Uh, I liked that movie. I think the movie that I really liked the best, if you say, I, what, what movie would I remember being uh, really liking when I was younger would, would have been Big Wednesday. Yeah, that would have, that would have been the one because um, it, it just seemed to capture um, uh, more of what what uh, you know the relationship of, between men who young men who are surfers, you know, the, who are boys and then become men, and it seemed to capture the the, the emotional elements of of the, the, really the the benefits of of uh, the male bonding that goes on from from being a surfer, you know, and the, the friendships you develop and stuff. You know. I, I thought I thought that movie was, was, was sort of captured some of the emotion that I felt as a as a, a young man growing up with to people. You know, I can't really think of a surfing movie off the top of my head where you have the relationship between father and son like you were exploring in Surfer. Not really. There's sort of a there's a mentor. The, uh, as far as a teacher and a student relationship, uh, uh, Chasing Mavericks was a little bit like that. Uh, that was the recent movie, but not not a father son. No, I I can't. Yeah, that's I didn't think of that, but yeah, I don't I don't know of one a father son for a surfing movie. So I know you had done a lot of filming of Sage as he was surfing, and I'm curious, what was the impetus to say I'm going to write the story around it. I'm going to create this narrative that works with me and works with my son. Cause it's, it takes a lot to make this your first feature, not only to direct it, but I mean, you do so many things. You're like producer, writer, editor, and then one of the major actors in the film as well. Originally I had uh, just thought, well, Hey, it would be really cool to document my son, all this sort of thing. We're shooting vi- high def and uh, 4k video of him anyways because he really wanted to to be a surfer and you end up you know that's part of the training is to to film um him surfing so he can see you know how he's doing turns and and how he could you know change his his method of of doing the turns and stuff and not not too differently than you would like if a if a golfer takes a videotape of his golf swing and and then you say, hey, you know, your your right arm is in the wrong position here. You want to adjust it like this. And so, um, you know, surfers really do study film of themselves in order to become better surfers. Very early, it was like fun to film him because he was so young. But then when he started to compete as a surfer, uh, a young uh, uh, surfer in these amateur contests, then he wanted me to film him anyways. But when he started to, uh, there was a couple of times when, um, er, early on, uh, like he, he would paddle in the waves himself, but sometimes I would, you know, I would swim out with him, um, with fins on, like uh, swimming alongside him while he's surfing. And some of the, he wanted to ride some of the bigger waves. You really have to push him in because when your kid's real young, he, he doesn't have the strength to paddle into a bigger wave because when the bigger wave comes, you know, it's moving faster and, and you got to paddle really fast because when you, when you take off surfing, you, you really want to be your, your, your speed that you have from paddling and really needs to kind of sort of match the speed of the wave as you're on the crest of it so that 
so that the, 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 the speed of the board and the speed of the wave are kind of matched. And then, and then when you jump up, there's not this big, big discontinuity or, or jolting or, or like a, it's really easy to stand up then. And then the, the board sort of is, is in the wave and you, you just sort of jump up. It, it doesn't feel like you're, you're, you're jumping up on a moving object. It feels like you're jumping up and, and everything's moving together and, and it, it all works. Whereas if you if you're going too slow, the wave kind of grabs you and throws you, and you and you you try and jump up and stand up, and the and the board's being pitched out. It's really hard to get your footing, you know. So it's really hard for a real young kid to ride a bigger wave. So um, you could swim out and push him into these things, you know. And so uh, you know, a, a couple of times I thought, you know, he said, "Yeah, go, go, go," and I and I pushed him in. I thought, "Oh my God," you know. And he'd come back laughing, and and that was kind of, that early stuff was kind of like, wow, you know, I, I thought, well, this is going to be really fun. He likes the big waves. It'll be fun to, fun to film. But I didn't think of making the film when he was that young. I, I thought of, you know, uh, not not certainly not surfer. I thought, well, it, it'll be fun to show his progression in kind of like a silent movie thing, and, and that could play like a video, you know. Um and then I slowly thought, well, no, it'll be fun to make it into a silent film with like a really cool music, and it could be like a like a real like a real movie, you know. And then uh, when when he um and that went on for years, and I just kept collecting footage and and archiving it, and 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 you know. But when we were in, uh, there's a couple of moments when when I first took him to Pipeline, and he rode a pretty good wave there. I thought, wow, that that was really cool. He was twelve, and then when he was when he was thirteen, and we went to um, we went to Mexico uh, to Puerto Escondido down in Oaxaca, Zacatella Beach. There, he was thirteen, and, and and he wanted to ride bigger waves down there. He went down there, and it, when he when he took off on one of those really steep, you know, twenty foot plus bases, you know, he at thirteen is about eighty five pounds or something. And, and he, he manhandled one of those waves. I thought, oh my God, you know, like it, it just sort of a light went on that if we made a real movie, we could get the, we could get the closing shot. I mean, we could get the real closing shot. Somehow a story in another six months or so he could, we could get the real wave, you know, cause I, I always thought, no, we couldn't make a real surf movie because, you know, if you don't have a giant wave in it at the end, you know, you don't really have a surf movie like a feature film material, you know. It would have been when he was 13 years old, about 80-some pounds, and and dropping in the really steep Puerto Escondido waves that were 20-foot, 25-foot faces, which, you know, we always talk in Hawaiian terms. A 25-foot face of the wave is only a 12-foot wave, right? So that's because the back of the wave is usually only about half half the uh, height of the front, you know. But when he when he did that, I, I thought, yeah, this is, um, this, this kid's for, uh, the real deal, you know. That's when I started thinking of, of how, how, how to make a feature film, because um, for sure he was going to, he was going to get some big waves, you know. How could I capture this whole story of he and I um, and put it into a story? I had sort of hung up the whole thing of acting when he was really young, I had filmed a little scene with him for another movie that I never quite finished. And I had him saying some poetry in, a, in another movie where I 
I just really wanted to have my son in a movie with me. He was only about five or six, and we filmed this whole scene, and I, I never finished that movie. But some of that footage ended up being in Surfer when I finally put the whole story together. Yeah. Well, I'm curious where you got the idea of the actual film itself, and especially the military aspect of it. The actual premise of the movie where the boy is frightened to go back in the water, he had lived through that in some ways, literally, from waves at the the wedge here in Newport Beach. And, so, and, and he had gotten slammed down to the bottom there a couple of times. And we'd always train for big waves because I never wanted him to get hurt. But he did get he did get uh, frightened a few times. And we, we did a lot of martial arts stuff to overcome the fear. If you get slammed by a big wave and held down and you almost suffocate from no air, it can be frightening for like a little kid. And so we worked a lot on that because he wanted to ride the bigger waves. I said, well, if you really want to do that, there's a lot of training. And it was sort of stuff I had done many years ago in, in the martial arts stuff. We did a lot of underwater stuff. So the premise of the movie, you know, boy is frightened of water uh, because the water almost killed him. He has to overcome his fear. It sort of came from, I thought, well, he's already lived through that. That'll be easy to, for him to pull that off, you know, and talk about it. The idea that I would be his teacher, you know, his his father, the ghost of his father, to come back and teach him to help him was sort of what we had sort of already lived through as a father and son. And he really did experience fear, and I really did teach him the things I taught him in the movie. I taught him that in real life, you know, to overcome his fear. The story that we had lived through while we were collecting all the footage had laid itself out in front of me. It was obvious to me that was the, the the premise of the movie. But when the military stuff uh, in the movie, then those qualities in, in, in the movie that you're talking about um, related to my character and, and some other characters in the movie, it really came from my youth, you know, and my father. My father was uh, Navy and then, he was U.S. Navy, and then he went to uh, the movie dedicated to him and the ship he was on. But when we lived in the Pacific Islands, we were on essentially the the the, uh, uh, the island was run by the U.S. military, the Navy, and the Army. You know, and so I, I had been around that my whole life. So so some of the things in there were just natural because I had grown up around uh, those kinds of people. You know, I had almost gone into the Navy myself. I was recruited. Um, uh, when I got my PhD in physics, um, I, I almost went right into the Navy because my father had gone into the Navy. And, but I, I ended up not going because I, I, um, uh, I just, you know, uh, they weren't going to let me fly. I, uh, I, I said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll go if I can fly jets. That'd be fun. But they weren't going to let me. They, uh, when they admitted that that's not why they wanted me, they wanted me because I was a uh, was so young and I was a PhD in physics to do science for them. I, well, I don't really want to do science in that way. I want to be a teacher and do other things. So, you know, I, I, I felt a little bit like, well, uh, I'm not going to get to do what I want in there, you know. Um, so I, but, but a lot, a lot of the Navy stuff in the movie is really, you know, from my life. It was affected me. I, I always thought that, uh, I'm, you know the whole martial arts thing, and 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 the the joy of being a warrior, and and not being frightened, and, and confronting conflict, and 
and that whole thing was, um, uh, and I, I, I always saw like our military as a positive part of our society that, you know, the military is there. It's like the, uh, the warriors of our culture, you know, but in martial arts, when you get more and more advanced, it's a little different than you're not really trying to kill people. You're trying to, you're trying to fight with them and till they feel the, the love of their own spirit inside of them. You're trying to push that into them so that then they feel that and they look up at you and you're, you're supposed to just stare each other in the eye and, and like you love each other because the, the, the battle brought you closer to your spirit and then you shake hands and, and, and walk away. That's really the, the purpose of fighting is, well, the, the warrior nature in us is to kill off bacteria, you know, so we don't die because if we didn't have immune system, we would all die. Your immune system just kills in balance, you know. It's like there's a balance there. And, and in martial arts, there's that same balance. You're not you're not trying to kill a guy. You're trying to just reach a harmony with, with that. And it, it, it really, the fighting is designed to invigorate your own spirit in your body. And that's it's sort of like a holy thing, you know. If we really take that to the limit, when, when I think about it, like we have our military... And our military is there to stamp out, you know, some crazy people come and try and kill a bunch of good people. You know, you got to stop it, you know. But, but like if, if there are a bunch of people invading Florida, you know, you would go down there and take care of it, you know, <laughs> and say, hey, you know, you can't come over here and kill us. You know, you, you got to you got to go home or, you know, and you you would end up killing some people and it would stop. But you wouldn't like nuke Florida, right? <laughs> to kill a thousand guys that are coming here to, you know, take over Miami. You, you just wouldn't do that because you would kill them, but then you'd kill some of us and then you'd destroy Florida. So I, I think that's that balance of just, just a, you know, uh, a confrontations are met immediately so that there's minimum death and minimum uh, collateral damage is, is, is really how our immune system works, you know. Um, because your immune system's killing a little bit every day, you know, and it's not really like it's not really like a bad thing. It's like it's a harmony in nature, you know. I think that's sort of the way it is, you know. Life is, and so I I, I look at it like you know, it's better to have all these small conflicts like a, a human organism does on a daily basis than to not have a, any conflict or war for fifty years, and all of a sudden there's some huge world war, you know. That's the way nature is really you know like like the indians they'd always have these small conflicts and battles and and things got resolved but there was never like you know the entire continent getting wiped you know wiping each other out you know so i think uh i think there's a lot to be learned from you know just just um basic how our bodies work you know and, and in martial arts you learn about that and you get in touch with your body and then i think actors do that too and so i think that's why those kinds of people are more humane you know they're in touch with their body and how it works it's a good thing you know i think you're not going to get everybody to do martial arts though <laughs> too much work you know apart from you and your son how did you go about casting the film oh well that was really easy because um i uh, at strasburg i had done plays with all those people that are in the movie and so i i knew them all and so i when when i came up with the story, um, you know, right up to where, you know, in that point in the story where Sage turns the tide on me and I have to do that, I do that monologue and then the, the story takes a big turn, you know, 
after that point, I, I, that, that's where the, the military stuff starts. And, and I, in my back of my mind, I knew exactly who I wanted. I knew, like I knew I wanted Gerald James to play that, that military doctor and he'd be perfect. And, and I had seen him do things where he played was like a doctor in other plays and stuff we had done. And I, I knew his qualities and I, you know, he could pull that off, you know. The other guys, I, I just knew them. We had a, a group of people that we actually called the group at Strasbourg for a while, and we we had done a lot of readings. And so, I, yeah, I just knew every one of them and, and what would be good for, you know. The older guy I knew uh, had done plays with him. The guy, if, if, when he's talking with uh, Gerald against the naval ship there, um, I knew him, Mitch. I knew Mitch Feinstein. I knew uh, in... Uh, and Turk, the guy who plays the Navy SEAL trainer, I'd known him since. Do you remember that part where he's training Sage? Um, he's, he's telling him, "Hey, you got to hold your breath. You're not going to die." And uh, and he goes through his little story about the past and stuff. Um, I knew him since, um, my gosh, since 1989. I known Turk, Turk Barty. You know, he's a he's a great actor. So it was pretty, it was just like people I knew that you knew they could do it and you know them for so many years. Yeah. I don't want to get too nerdy, but I was very curious as far as the, the order of shooting. I know you don't shoot movies necessarily in order. So I was curious as far as not nerdy, not nerdy at all. Really, really interesting, uh, interesting question. Cause it, it dovetails back on your earlier question, how, how I came up with the story. Some of the story was the way it, it was the only way we could, the only kind of story that we could present the material um we were stuck with uh that's the whole thing like the stage you know stage was growing up okay so I, as i was putting this thing together um i thought well there's all this surf footage with no dialogue so far and then if i started shooting a story i have to worry about how quickly stage is changing and uh and how in, in continuity and it all working you know and so um it uh, all the fifth footage was shot by uh, the time he was, he was only like three months into being 14 when he rode that giant wave at the end. Of course, after that wave, it was like, okay, no more silent movie. We gotta, we're got we going to make a real movie. We got the ending shot. And then that spring was planning. And then um, that summer we shot the hospital stuff and the stuff with... Um, Gerald and, and Mitch in the naval shipyard we shot. So the hospital and the naval shipyard stuff we shot in the summer of uh, 2016, I guess it was. And then that fall is when when we shot all the stuff with Sage and I talking against the rock uh, along uh, at the edge of the ocean. But I had already I had already planned the stuff to shoot against the rock, and 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 then. The idea was how how do I how do I uh, tell the story and incorporate all this early surf footage, which was nine years of footage, and the the way was like I did it to have him remember, have these memories of him surfing, and what was going on in his mind while he was surfing, um, so that and use that as a method to sort of teach him of how to be unafraid now. The flashbacks were were sort of necessary. Because we're standing here, he's 14, and all that footage is from way back when. You know, how do we use it and make it interesting? So it was all surf footage, and then the hospital, and, and, and uh, you know, so the, the, the surf footage, the big wave, the end of the movie was done before we shot the whole beginning of the movie. And we broke a lot of rules of cinema, right? The, 
never supposed to have a flashback, not supposed to have a, a monologue, certainly not a 10, 10 or 12 minute one without a cut. Uh, I wasn't too concerned about that, but I, I, was, I was concerned about making every moment of the movie create the next moment and make you want to watch the next moment. It didn't matter how I did that. As long as I did that, I thought I got a movie that people would watch to the end, you know. The conversation that you and, and Sage have against The Rock has a very um, improvisational feel, and I was curious how much of that was written and how much was improvised. Yeah, I, I, it, it's very difficult to get uh, a kid to learn lines, right? And they, they sort of sort of stiffen up and become a little bit robotic, you know. Um, so the conversation against The Rock was written as notes was all written as notes that I wrote. I wrote out notes, and I I I, I tried to I tell Tom the 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 Finney, uh I said, Tom, this is what we're going to shoot today, and here's the basic gist of what I'm going to do. And Sage is gonna is free to react wherever he 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 he, he feels to react. But I I have this is the story of the movie, and I got to communicate this to him, and we we got to get to the next moment where we look backward in time and we see this so it's kind of like uh, it was improvised based on notes the monologue is was completely written exactly um and i of course couldn't remember the, all the lines i wrote and um and i knew i wouldn't be able to so we had i had cue cards for the monologue but i i think it looked natural uh, when i did the monologue the, the guy who taught me how to do that is an interesting story behind that the the movie I had shot before um, years before for this um, and it's it's actually finished but I never wrote music for it I just sort of stage was born and I said oh I'm not gonna act again um, uh, the, the guy who taught me how to do a long monologue without memorizing the lines was a really great actor and friend for so long and and he's passed now um, Stefan Girosh I don't no, he's a character actor in hundreds of movies. You probably know him from, uh, he was in, it was the movie, Jeremiah Johnson, he was the, the mountain man. Um, he, he played like, I think, I think the other, there's Robert Redford and the other, other mountain men were all played by this guy. He, he, he just appeared as another mountain man and, and a different character, Stefan Girash. But he, he did a part for me in my other movie that's never been out released or finished, no music. And, and he, I wrote a big long monologue for him, like, kind of like in Surfer, like a sort of a, a po poetry style, old, old acting classical monologue. And he did it. And that's how he, he did it. He had me write all the lines out. And I had a cameraman there and I was holding the cue card and he said, slowly move it around so that he doesn't there in one direction for any more than a second and and so so he would look up at it and 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 start his monologue and then he could look down and then when he looked up again the card would be like four feet away he'd have to find the card by looking over somewhere else and um that's how he he was able to get through that i have that footage of him it's pretty amazing but, so that's how i did this monologue and surfer because the way stefan taught me because uh um I don't know when you memorize lines, it's kind of kind of weird, you know. Like you can do it, but you gotta you gotta know them so well, and then you gotta forget them, and then you gotta magically discover them through some organic 
process in your body and memory that and they're supposed to just magically come to you as if you're staying with them the first time. And that could take a long time to uh, achieve, you know, on a on a 10-minute monologue like that. You, you actually need to work on it for about a year. And, and there was no way, I mean, uh, because Sage was growing and his face is changing and we got it. So, uh, you know, I love making the movie every second of it, um, especially filming all the surfing footage because there was no pressure. We're having a good time. I'm with my son every day. But, you know, the element of time crunch uh, for the movie came when I, I realized that we got I got to commit to one story and one story only. We got to get all his footage done within within a, a, few, a few months or, or we're going to end up throwing it all away and having to come up with a new story. You know, that was the hard part. The hard part of the movie was realizing that, hey, we're running out of time um, if we want to do the story this way. And otherwise, then we're going to have to scrap that. And, and so that, that pressure and the sort of the desperation of just start painting and throwing paint on the canvas because we've got to get this done. We've got to get this done. We've got to get this done. Not because, you know, uh, it, because this kid is growing and he's changing every day. And so that was. And then the other really most difficult part was that monologue emotionally. That was that was hard. I, I'm still tired from that monologue. It was done. I, I started it, and, and then the guy holding the card for me didn't do it right, so I had to stop and sort of give him more of a tutorial on how to how to move the card around so I could still see the lines and the glare wouldn't be on the board and and, and have to disrupt me. But so I I, I, start, I started it and I got it about 30 seconds and had to stop, and then the next one was just one take, and so the whole model. Bug was done, but I'm still tired from it. You know, it's a lot. How was the uh, the post production process? How was the editing and the music part of it? We finished filming, and I would guess my 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 feeling would be my, my memory of it is we finished in about October of 2017, October Novemberish in there. Um, the post production was um, it took a whole another uh, one solid year. Uh, after that, and uh, it basically was uh, kind of really time-consuming. There was a guy uh, who had had all the surf footage, and um, he and, and I uh, went through it, and and he he basically took all the surf footage and 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 kind of made the. Uh, 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 with with my direction of what what I'm trying to see in there, you know. Um, and that was a, like a six hour cut of a, like a silent movie of all the surf footage telling the story. Then all of the dialogue scenes were edited uh, by Tom and, um, uh, the, the, the surf footage was edited by Chris Waring and, and, the, and the master editor of the whole movie was Tom Badu and he, he edited all of the dialogue scenes after I had, I had sort of uh, done rough edits on, on them of what I wanted or what I thought I wanted. And when we put it all together, um, there was, you know, way too long of a movie. Um, the surf footage alone was like six hours, but um, we, we took pockets out of that, and I sort of laid it all out in order. And when you put all that together, it was still a three-hour movie. When you took the, the chunks out of the surf footage, and what Tom did 
was he layered it so that the story I was telling stage by the rock or, or the, the teachings, and really it's a, a father teaching a son, that got layered with the early surf footage so that it was dissolving in and out of that sort of the teaching there. And that, that really tightened that part up. Then the hospital, and then you'll notice the last, after the hospital stuff, the last 20 minutes of the movie is sort of like a silent movie. There's just a little bit of dialogue in there, and the surfing is telling the rest of the story. That's kind of the, the history of making this movie. The movie was originally supposed to be a silent movie, really. And so that was, that, that last 20 minutes is sort of captures that, like a, like a little short silent film. Um, with just a couple of scenes of some some very brief lines, you know, the post was it was it was a lot um, to get the movie down to a um, hundred minutes, you know. The music was um, still uh, being done contiguously with that, but um, the music was uh, a good ten months of solid composing and going back and forth with the the guy doing the electronic synthesis of my my composition when i compose i i hum and i record it and i hum the the sound i want as i'm watching the 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 edited footage and then it sounds like oh that's easy but (laughs) it's actually harder because you're trying to get you're trying to get it perfect for that like say three minutes and you you don't get it right the first time and then you then you, you say, oh, there's a section here I, I liked, and then, but you're trying to get it all to fit, and then, then you, you know, the software, you can take what you hum, and it creates the notes, you know, it writes the notes for you, and, um, but it's still, uh, it, 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 it's very much a tedious process. It's still like 10 months, um, to really get it right, you know, and a lot of, a lot of stuff that you come up with. It sort of sounds good to you, but you're not really, you know, creating music for the movie. <laughs> you're listening to something else in your head and say, well, that's a good sound. That's a good melody. But you listen to it again and you realize you're not even like seeing what's going on on the footage. And it's really got to blend in. I, I don't, I haven't heard very many people comment about the music, but the bit, the star of the music is the theme song that where Carol Connors wrote the lyrics to, you know. That's a really a nice piece of that's a great song, you know. Yeah, and I like that it kinda of captures that classic surf rock as well. Yeah, that's a it's a great song. The great song. You know, the guitar but but there's there's like five other guitar sounds in the movie embedded in the movie. And but the theme song has has a really cool sounding guitar. There's, there's some other interesting guitar sounds in there. I wanted it to be like that. I wanted like the drama of the movie to be real classical music uh, orchestra. And then as the surfing began, I wanted to go, go into these other sounds. You know, uh, it was really important to me that that the, the surf footage at the end, where the where the hero of the movie Sage is conquering his fear and and riding all these waves. I, I wanted that to sound you know different. You know, yeah, yeah, and then we have that we have that sort of gamelan sound from Bali when we're he's surfing in Bali. We have a we have a the composition is put together. Uh, Red Bennett is the guy who um, did all the electronic synthesis and arranging, and he um, he was he generated the the Bali sound, uh, the gamelan. It's called gamelan sound, uh, uh, the chimes uh, from Indonesia. 
I, I just saw a movie about about that kind of music uh, called Bali something Sound of Paradise or something. It's about gamelan music, but we wanted to have that sound in it, so you felt like you were in Bali. And then we wanted to have the the the, the Spanish guitar sound when he's surfing in Mexico. And then we wanted to have that real uh, sort of Led Zeppelin sounding guitar um, when he's surfing the big waves in Newport at the Wedge. And and then we wanted to have the uh, go back to like a deep a deep dark um, uh, almost Wagnerian sound when he's at Mavericks up by San Francisco. So we diverted out of guitar to go to Mavericks because Mavericks is such a dark, foreboding place. We wanted to I wanted that real orchestra to to pound that sound in. And then when he rides the huge waves at Toto Santos, I wanted it to sound a little. I wanted it to sort of remind you of Dick Dale, you know the sound the sound of the guitar of Dick Dale guitar and then and then back to the theme song at the very end credits where it has that real that's a different that 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 Alex Hughes the guy who did the guitar of the theme song he co-composed the music with me but that sound of that that guitar is is sort of unique I I I it's a little bit a mix of it's a, it's a very unique sounding guitar in the theme song it's like a uh, that Alex Alex Hughes uh it, it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of, of 80s punk guitar and a, a little bit of a 60s, 1960s guitar. It's, and, and it's a really uh, interesting mixture of, of like consciousness in that the, the guitar, the theme song that Alex did. I, I was really pleased with what he did with that. I have to ask you, what was the story with the dead whale? Oh, boy, the whale. Um, okay, the background is the the story of Jonah from the Bible is I teach sage against the rock and and the meaning of the story of Jonah from the Bible, you know that you got you know, is the, the riddle in the story of Jonah is faith, right? Faith, have faith in God, and so we needed this whale to tell to teach the teach the young man the, the meaning of the story of Jonah. I thought um, that would be great if we had a dead whale, and that would have been in the spring before we even started shooting the hospital stuff. I wanted to have a, a, a dead whale to tell him the story of Jonah. And I, I thought, well, we'll never get a dead whale. I don't remember, you know, seeing a dead whale in a long time. In 2016, I just don't remember seeing one for a long time. Um, I, saw, I saw a dead whale when I was a kid, and I don't think I remember seeing one, physically actually seeing one or being near one for many, a couple of decades. I'm trying to think because I'm heavier in the whale. Yeah. No, we hadn't even shot the hospital scene yet. So it would have been the spring before we shot the hospital scene. And I, I had conceived the idea of the scene with the dead whale and had dismissed it. Just, just, we'll never get a dead whale. I was watching Surfline, which is the, the website where you go to look at the waves, you know. And they have cameras on all these different breaks. And you can see, oh, there are waves here, waves there, where we're going to go surfing today and all this stuff. And there's this thing about a dead whale floating off of um, lower trestles, which is a a point break wave uh, south south of San Clemente, sort of right there where the beginning of where Camp Pendleton begins on the coast in the south of San Clemente. And I, oh my God, there's a dead whale down there, floating, you know, floating off of trestle. So I thought, well, let's go down there tomorrow and and see if it washes up. And I called the one cameraman and I got to say this and. 
you know, we've got to go down here and we've, we've got to kind of do this just in case we get a dead whale down there because I just thing with the story of Jonah and, and I'm going to drag you toward the whale and I sort of choreograph what we're going to do if it's there. We went down there and <laughs> there's a dead whale on the beach and we got there. It was still dark and the sun's coming up and I thought, well, there's looky-loose whenever there's a dead whale. we got to get this shot, you know. we got to get it shot before you're going to have a ranger and you're going to have cops. You're going to have all kinds of stuff down here. Guys, we got to do this and we're going to improvise this whole thing. We'll connect it to the rest of the movie later, but we got to get this and that's how we shot the dead whale, you know. We shot the whole morning. Well, not the whole morning. You have to realize we shot till about from sunrise till about seven thirty, and then then there. Sure enough, there's looking little people coming and looking at the whale, and the whole beach is crowded. So we got all that done, and then we went back and looked at the footage and realized that we needed some shots to stay staring at the whale. So we went back the next morning. The whale's still there again, super early. There's no one around, and shot him. You know, he had to walk up and stare at the whale and walk away from it. And so we went back, and I went back. I didn't have a cameraman. I shot that of steady cam of him walking toward the whale and looking at it. And I got a bunch of well, the close-up of the eye was really important. That the the whale, uh, as you know in the story, the whale's sad because it has to. Uh, it looks for Jonah. If Jonah, if Jonah doesn't jump into the ocean, then it's a it's a signal of the failure of man not exercising faith in God and so when whales are crying they're sad. So it was real important to get the whale's eye, which actually had blood coming out of it, you know. But but that was a whole, you know, frantic, frantic, frantic get down there. It's about a half hour drive to where we had to go and is there a camera battery, is there this you get down there fast, stage put where where this and here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna he didn't have to do uh, any talking in that. He had to listen, you know. And so I just said, listen to what I'm saying. You don't know why we're doing this or how it connects to your movie yet, but trust me, just do this. And he, I thought he did a good job. By not saying a word, I think it's more interesting to watch him than it is to watch me screaming at him, you know. And I had to scream to get the audio because down there is so much sound from the ocean. And I had to, I had to scream it out, but I wanted, we wanted it mixed with the sound of the ocean, so it was supposed to be a dream, you know? We did not ADR those lines. I screamed loud enough to, to Mike to get it. And so, and I think it, it, the way we did it, and, and Tom cut it, I think it, I think it worked, you know, for what we did. Tell me about the rollout of the film. What was it like seeing the movie for the first time with an audience, and when was that? It was February 16th. To February 22nd in 2018, it played at the Lindley Music Hall Theater in Beverly Hills. It screened five times a day. And I did not watch it. Well, I checked the sound in the very first showing, which was, um, I think, at noon. And then um, I didn't go to the, there was just a couple people in, the, uh, I don't think there's anyone there. There might have been one person in there at noon. And then there was a couple people in there at the uh, the afternoon shows, and I, I didn't go in there. And then there was, um, I think, well, the five o'clock show had a had about eighteen people. I did, I couldn't watch the movie. I couldn't sit and watch it. The, you know, there's so many times I had been through everything, you know, and and I could I couldn't sit down in the theater and watch it. It was um, my my brain my brain just 
you couldn't process it, you know. The the fatigue of getting it to that point was pretty heavy, you know. You know, when you do everything, it's a different kind of mental fatigue, I think, when you, uh, you know, you compose the music, you produce, direct, star, write, and when you do everything, you're gonna, you're gonna find, you're gonna hit some walls in, in the land of fatigue. That's all I can tell you. You know, that's all I can tell you. Well, you can talk to anybody who's done everything, even the people you, who, who produce and star in the movie and direct it. You know, they're not doing the editing and the composing and, and being the distributor. That whole thing of being the distributor and and, and print uh, printed up these little two-for-one vouchers, I handed those things out for two weeks before the movie opened in Beverly Hills. I, I, I think I handed out 15,000 of those all over L.A. And I, and I think some of those people came, but I don't think, I think a lot of them did not. I, I, I think... Uh, I mean, you do that, you know, and go work as a professor and then go walk around all night putting these things on car windshields and do that for, you know, 15 to 20 days before the opening of the movie. You, you're going to get tired, you know. You're going to get really tired. So the, the, the screening, so it's open on a Friday and, and the, the Friday, the, the five o'clock, the, the, the seven thirty and the ten o'clock had, had people in it. I'm not saying there are a lot, maybe like 20, 12 and 20 and stuff. But, but the, uh, the next day, the Saturday night, there was, uh, I nearly at that, the, the primetime show, which I guess was the eight o'clock or, or 7.30, that theater at the Lemley, Lemley Music Hall, Beverly Hills held, hold, I think that the one we had, there's three theaters in the building. We had the 140 seat and we were near capacity. If you looked at the audience, you just saw a couple of holes. So it was uh, above 110 people. I don't know the exact number. I, I couldn't sit in with them and watch the movie. I did watch the movie later in the week. I sat through, I could sit through pockets of it and then I'd have to walk outside. But that, that, um, showing, I did a Q&A after. I did not see everything that happened in there, but people told me. I did hear some cheering, like everyone screaming and clapping at one. I was out in the, the foyer. I'd sit in the foyer and I'd go out and smoke a cigar and come back just waiting to, to you know, do the Q&A. And I, I, they said that everyone screamed and cheered after I went back into the ocean after the monologue and that there was a, a tr a periods of tremendous um, comedy in the movie. Um, for, throughout the movie, um, and, and, uh, and periods where people were, you know, listening intently. Um, so I, I yeah, it was interesting. It, the very first week was an interesting experience. <laughs> the guy who captured that week really was the, um, the guy who wrote Grant Pardee. He wrote the review in Vice. That, yeah, that's, that's the guy who sort of he sort of captured the essence of that week in that review, I think. And now you're touring this around and showing it at different places. This must be pretty exciting and different for you. Yeah, I, I, what, what's, it's really cool because there are, um, it, it, like in September, it played in 10 theaters uh, in, in throughout the country and in Hawaii. You know, it comes in waves, and, and now there's a, a bunch more theaters geared up to play it. Uh, a lot of these theaters I contact, they don't know about the movie you know and, and they you send them stuff and 
there's a period of time for the sort of ingest the idea of possibly playing surfer, and then they learn about it. There's a lot written about it now, um, but early on there was there was nothing, you know. You really got to call. You can't just send emails, and most people just dump their email. You got to call them and talk to them. You got to get somebody on the phone. You got to talk to them, and and you're you're really uh, 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 pitching an idea of something for them to do. You kind of be, you're being a salesman, you know. You know, you love your movie, you love your son, you want people to watch his movie, and, and, and there's just no way to not do it. But you realize, you know, how do I get these people to think of, hey, would you like to play this movie? You say, well, why should I play the movie? You know, there's no distributor, and uh, uh, why are people going to come to the theater? And, and you sort of, you learn, you learn, um, and they learn. The theaters that played it, who did what I told them, got people. And the theaters who did nothing, you know, they didn't get people. Uh, I discovered that this movie has, well, there's actually 14 different demographic groups that like this movie. You have to get some kind of message to them. These groups, I'll tell you what they are. I don't have them all in my head, but I, I'll tell you several of them. These groups will come to the movie. And they're, they're the kind of people that like this movie. And the theaters that would listen to me, and, and let me help them uh, get, get you know, messages to these groups in the area in the early theaters, got people at their theater, you know. In, in Ventura, we had no surfers. We had no skateboarders. No young people <laughs> came to the movie. But we got over 70 people to c- come to the movie when it screened there at the Ventura Majestic Theater. And where did these people came, came from? They came from these groups that I had identified that would love the movie. Like I said, there's a lot of them. There's, there's the faith community likes the movie. So you've got synagogues and community churches. There's two groups right there. They see the movie as more of a, a profound message movie, you know. Father teaches son the Bible and uh, to conquer fear. There's the, um, the, the really fun, really fun enthusiastic groups are the people who just like independent films, the cult movie people. These are, these are really fun midnight movie people and there, there's so much goodwill and energy in them and if you could tell them about it and get like there's, there's people that they're kind of like film group people they 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 go to films they go to independent films um there's certain groups and, and you you know about this yeah and, and they, they they love independent films and they seek these things out and so it's kind, it's kind of like the people who really see the um comedy comedic parts as being really cool and they love it. And so if you can get them to know about it and want to come, you're going to get people. There's um martial arts groups. You send a, a message to them that, hey, this is um, a movie where uh, anyone who is dealing with fear is training to be a martial artist. There's a, there's a meditation prayer technique that the father teaches the son to conquer fear. And it, you run through it in the story of the movie. Um, well, martial artists who hear that are, uh, I got, I got a bunch of them come to a, a screening once and I asked them, you know, how did you guys find out about the movie? They go, oh, we're Taekwondo guys. And we saw that one Facebook message was sent out. And so it just goes on and on. The, um, Alcoholic Anonymous people, they like the movie, you know, um, you, you, uh, uh, a lot of them are people who are dealing with fear. You get a message to a group of them and they start telling each other about it and they, midnight movie or whatever, they, they go out and see the movie. 
so the, the, anyways, I identified all these groups and, and they're, they're all kind of like interesting people who like something about some of the things that are in the movie. And, and you'll, you can get people to go to this movie, you know? So what's next for you? What are you working on now? The movie that I had already made before this was a, a, a multi, more than a decade project. Um, it, it's actually, I had finished the final cut of it before I started shooting Surfer. And I never had any music for it. So I, I'd like to write a score for that and put music in it. And um, I have another film that um, was sort of partially done. And it, it's about a, a, the cut of it is about the first 25 minutes of a story. And I've taken that story um, and adjusted it to accommodate a 12-year-old girl who is my brother's daughter. Um, and I, I want to finish the movie with her throughout the rest of the movie. And, I, and I'm a, um, an older man taking care of this kid. So I end, I end up with this kid and, and, and we're traveling a, across the United States. Um, so that, that I want to, I want to do that next summer, get some, just get, get the project that's done scored and get this other one, uh, uh, shot and then, and then maybe try and get those both both out in 2020 or something, you know? Well, Doug, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been terrific. Well, I hope I gave you some good copy, buddy. You know, you're doing a lot of hard work. You can cut it up as however you need to. You have my, my full permission. I'm very curious how you got into the business and how you got to, uh, to, to writing songs and lyrics. I was 16 and a half. My girlfriend was dating, I will tell you at the end of this little soliloquy who it was, this older person, he was in high school, he would come to pick us up, and I would always be singing. And her name was Donna. One day, he said to me, I love your voice, I'd love to write a song for your voice, do you have $10? And I went, $10? I don't have 10 cents. I said, what are you talking about? I'm 16 and a half years of age. And he said, this was a long time ago. And he said, well, if you can get the $10, you can our singing group, and I'll write the song for your voice. So I went to my mom and dad, drove them crazy. But my father had been a jockey. He was not a gambling man, but jockeys live on the edge. And I kept saying to my daddy, because I was my daddy's girl, I kept saying, Daddy, I need the $10. I need the $10. I, I, they're gonna, he's gonna write a song about for my voice and, and we're gonna be rich and we're gonna, cause we are very poor and we're, and we're gonna live in a beautiful home and, and you're gonna drive a brand new car and I'm gonna get you a racehorse. And he said, forget the racehorse. I'm off the track. And then, but he drove my mother crazy and he kept saying, Gail, give her the $10, give her the $10. So finally my mother, after saying a million times, go do your homework, Annette, my real name, gave me the $10 and I gave it to the person. We went into the studio. He fell in love with my voice even more. And we cut the flip side of what became the record. And he said, I really even love your voice even more on tape. And I said, okay. And about two weeks later, he called me in the middle of the night. And guess what I was doing, Mike? I was doing my homework. And the phone rings and he says, listen to this. And he plays me the song. And he says, what do you think? What do you think? And I went, oh, I, I, it's really nice. I mean, I didn't know. He said, we'll be here tomorrow. We have to rehearse that we're going into the studio to do this side. 
And I went, but but I don't have any, because he would always take us places in his car. I said, well, I, I don't have any, I can't drive, I'm too young. And he said, take the bus. So I did. <laughs> Got to his house. We rehearsed the song. We went into the studio. Song went on to become the number one record in the world. It's called To Know Him Is To Love Him. I'm the voice of the teddy bears to know, know, know him. That's me. The person who wrote the song for my voice was the first thing he ever did in his life. Phil Spector. And it was off his father's epitaph. Father committed suicide in New York. And Mother Bertha, that was the name of this publishing company, moved them, her, the family, but he and his sister out here. And the, on the epitaph, it said, to know him was to love him. And he turned it into a teenage lament and cast my voice. First thing he ever did. Did it in two takes. One for balance. Sang it all the way through. Every single note. There's not one splice in the song. It was the first thing that Sandy Nelson ever played drums on. And it, well, he went on to do Teen Beat. And the bottom line is we put Gold Star on the map, which that's where Phil Spector did all his great work. It was a Gold Star with Stan and Larry, and Stan Ross was our engineer, and we were kids. He took me aside, and he said, sing it like you were singing to your boyfriend. And I said, Phil, I don't have a boyfriend. He said, then sing it like you were thinking of your father. Isn't that a bizarre statement to have made? Because his father committed suicide. And the reason Elvis Presley became my first boyfriend was because he always wanted to meet the girl. The girl he didn't know. I could have been Godzilla for all he knew. But he fell in love with my voice, and he wanted to meet the girl who sang To Know Him Is To Love Him. And we were the teddy bears. Years later, I was brought up to Elvis's house on Bellagio, and because uh, one of his quote-unquote Memphis Mafia, that's what they were called, said, aren't you the girl that sang To Know Him Is To Love Him? And I went, yeah. He saw me in a market. I said, yes. He said, you know, Elvis, all, and I, I thought to myself, yeah, right. He said, Elvis always wanted to meet you because he loved your voice. On to know, he talks about it. And I said, okay. Picked me up, brought me to Elvis's. The first thing Elvis ever said to me. I walked down the steps. I was standing by a pool table. And there was Elvis in the, sort of in, a little bit in the distance. And he was like a beautiful cat. I love cats. I love cats. I have Abyssinians. They're very rare. But he he was like a, a panther. I can't, it, the, his movements, he was just so electrifying and so beautiful and fluid. And he walked up to me and he said, so uh, why'd you name the group the Teddy Bears? And I didn't know what to say to Elvis Presley. And I looked at him and I said, just want to be your teddy bear. And that's and that started our love affair. To know, know, know him is to love, love, love him. Just to see him smile makes my life worthwhile. To know, know, know him is to
So how do you go from little Annette Kleinbart to Cece? I grew up under Annette Funicello's ears, the Mickey Mouse Club. It's amazing that years later, you know, one of the highest grossing animated films of its time was The Rescuers. And I did all the music and lyrics and was nominated for an Oscar for that film. But this was years before, and, and I was in school, and she went from a 32 to a 38D on television, if you remember. I mean, all of a sudden, Annette had boobs, and all the boys would come up to me in school. It was very traumatic when you were a girl and, you know, in school. You've got to picture this now. They would put their, like, fingers on uh, above their e- head and sort of wiggle them like ears, and they'd go, Annette, why aren't your ears growing? And I hated the name because of that, because I was a 32 minus trainer A bra, and she was, like, gorgeous. And I hated the name just because of her. And I told her this story. She was hysterical many, many years later. And so I changed the name, and I, for some bizarre reason, Always loved the name Connors. Did I know there'd be a porno queen, a Supreme Court justice, a Chuck Connors, a Mike Connors? Who knew? But I loved that name, and I thought that Carol Connors had an alliteration. I didn't even know what the word meant at the time, but it had a sound to me. So I changed my name, but didn't change it legally, legally. On my passport, I have both names. My driver's license is in my legal name. The deed to my house is in both names. Because my mother and father didn't want me to change it legally, so I didn't. How did you make that transition to writing songs for movies? When I was really young, one of my favorite, for some bizarre reason, I was fascinated by a film called High Noon. But I was more fascinated by the song, Oh, Don't Forsake Me, Oh, My Darling. Oh, Don't Forsake Me, Oh, My Darling. Frankie Lane had an enormous hit on it, and I just loved the song, and I loved how the song fit into a visual, and I guess somewhere in my little pea brain, I connected all the dots of visual and audio. That sort of concept of, of music to film to visual really sort of took its toll on me. I It wasn't just that I because I had always been writing songs. I mean, I wrote, rewrote Beethoven when I was like nine, and my teacher went screaming out of the house that I was the most horrifying child she had ever met because I felt he wrote it wrong. So I, I thought she'd be proud of me. So I rewrote it for her. And I said, I need to play you something, Mrs. I think, um, Bernstein. And she said, and I played it to her. I played it this, what I had rewritten. And she looked at me like I was Godzilla. And she said, you just rewrote Beethoven. <laughs> so I'd always been writing songs. I think that's, uh, and my favorites were West Side Story. I saw it 13 times. And I know every word of every song. And, and my sister and I used to interact. Uh, and Calamity Jane. I know that's bizarre, but I know every word of every song in Calamity Jane. Doris Day was my idol. Secret Love. Was that the most beautiful song? Oh, I love that, and I love all the movies that she and Rock Hudson did together. I mean, they were so great. I know. I got, I got to work with her on, I think it was called Glass Bottom Boat or something like that. Well, I can't remember. I, I was in that. I got to work on it. And then, as fate would have it, her son, Terry Melcher, is the man. The, he's passed away, may he rest in peace. 
he produced. I'm the only girl who ever wrote a Hot Rod song in the history of music, and it went to number one, and Carol Shelby gave me a car. I wrote Hey Little Cobra by the Ripcords, and Terry Melcher was A&R at uh, Columbia Records, and he produced it, and it wasn't just the Ripcords. It was it was Brian from the Bruce from the Beach Boys and Jan from Jan and Dean that sang on it. <laughs> I wasn't here. I was in Mexico scuba diving when they did it, but I wrote the song with my brother. So, how long did the the teddy bears last? And after they were done, did you move on to another group, or did you continue writing and singing? We didn't last that long. We did Dory Records, which was a subsidiary of the major labor label Era Records, had us for four songs. That's all we ever did. And then we went to Imperial Records with Lou Chud, and we did an album. And it took forever because after Phil had to know him is to love him, he started to get into this real producer mode. And, you know, it was, you know, 500 takes later, it was like, uh, Phil, um, I don't have a voice anymore today. You know, I've done 500 takes for you. And then I had a car accident. I went off a cliff. I had finally, finally got a driver's license. And I ended up driving my car off Coldwater and Mulholland. Didn't mean, I didn't mean to do it, by the way. I almost died. And uh, that sort of ended the group. I mean, you know, because I had 26 stitches to put my nose back on my face. And it was way before plastic surgery was what plastic surgery was today. Took four operations. And then as, as ironic as it is, years later, I owned the fastest production car in the history of cars. Carol Shelby gave me a Cobra. My car today, which I don't own, it's a long involved story, is worth $1,500,000. I had three of them, but the last one is worth one million five hundred thousand. So I would drive around in, you know, like this Cobra. Not that we're not talking about a Ford Mustang Cobra, the Shelby Cobra. We're talking about the Cobra Cobra, and uh, it was just hysterical. I mean, it was outrageous. I was the only girl who ever owned one. You know, <laughs> they had it in their name. After well, first it was in my mother's name, and then you know because of insurance policies, and then the third one was in my name. Yeah, no, I'm calling you from Detroit, so those Oh, my kinda... God! Motor City! Exactly. So, yeah, as soon as you said Carol Shelby's name, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, Lee Iacolka, who was president of high performance at Ford Motor Company at the time, because Carol said to me when I went in to see him, he said, if he, you know, he loved to know him as to love him, too. So much of my life has revolved around that one song. And he took a meeting with me because I had cracked up my friend's AC Bristol, the front of the car, and he had just read an article about the AC Cobra and this weird man named Carol Shelby from Texas that had come up with this strange car, you know, that was basically a Bristol. So he, I went out to see him in El Segundo, and I had on these little hip huggers and this little top, and, and he took them, he left the secretary, said, oh, let, let her come in, I love her song. So I went in and I said, Carol, Mr. Shelby, I said, can you put an AC uh, Cobra front on a Bristol back? And he said, I can't do that, little girl. He said, but if you write a song about my car and it becomes a big hit, 
I'll give you one, and I'll take you to Lamar. Ooh la la. I went to Lamar, and I had a cobra. Lee Iacocca said that that song, Hey Little Cobra, you spring, little cobra, getting ready, gave Ford Motor Company millions and millions of dollars of free advertising. Hey, little cobra, don't you know you're going to shut them down? I took my cobra down to the track, hitched to the back of my Cadillac. Everyone was there just a waiting for me. There were plenty of stingrays and XKs. Spring, little cobra, getting ready to strike. funny you're talking about the alliteration of your name and then one of you one of the first movies that you worked on uh was catalina caper also right there with your cc yeah catalina capers and um i did a lot of the little beach movies and then they would put me in the movie you know like i'd write the song i think i think swing in summer or catalina capers also starred raquel welch i think it was swing in summer and uh, yeah, and um, I wrote her wrote a song for it. But the one thing I remember is that because she was just starting, she was played like a school marm type person, and all of a sudden she takes out the pin from her hair and cascades a beautiful hair, and she rips open her shirt and this gorgeous figure, <laughs> and that was Raquel Welch. Yes, I did do Catalina Capers. I did a, a, a Girls on the Beach. I think that was another one. Oh, my God. And then I did Red Line 7000. And that was the funniest story because it was a Howard Hawks movie. And he was, you know, one of the best directors. And um, so I, I, he wanted to meet me because of Cobra. And I think really what he wanted was to have the Cobra parked on the lot next to his car. He was a big car buff. And so one day... You know, I went in and I showed him the song. It's, oh, God, when I think of this horrible song, but whatever. And he said to me, um, if you don't act in my film, I'm not going to use your song. And I said, but Mr. Hawks, I don't know how to act. And he said, neither do they. Six weeks and I got a SAG card. <laughs> and I played a waitress. <laughs> But I had so much fun. I mean, it was so... And every day I would pull in, you know, the big pipes on the car, and I would pull in and, you know, park it right next to Mr. Hawk's car. <laughs> and everybody would ooh and ah, oh, my God, what is it? What is it? And it's owned by a girl? You know, and that was like... Well, Brian Wilson had the best line. He, um, when it went on to, you know, because it's considered one of the most important Hot Rod songs written because of its affiliation with Ford. And so Brian came up to me years and years ago and he said, we, because remember it was an all boys club. He said, we always knew it was written by a girl. And he sort of spit the word out. And I said, Brian, how did you know that? And he said, because, you know, they were so exact on everything. He said, you can't take your car out of gear and let it coast to the line. And I said, Brian, if your car is that far out in front, that's exactly what you can do. But they never forgave me for writing, you know, such an important song. Well, I do have to ask, how did you get involved with uh, Bill Conti and Rocky? 
Ann Robbins and myself and Bill were with the same agent, Stan Melander, who was wonderful. And there was a little film, a tiny little film. And he said, you know, they're, they're looking to maybe put a song. And I, so why don't you guys go to the, uh, they're doing a, a, a screening, a rough cut. So we, we, we went and we're sitting there and the film opens up and there's a song and it, I'll never forget it. And it said, he's got a Sunday punch that will put you into Monday. And I said to Bill, I nudged him and I said, that's really good. Why do they need us? And he said, shut up, Carol. <laughs> I did. So the film ends and there was, you know, the scene of the running. It, was, it wasn't together like it ended up in the film, but John Avelson did have the director, may he rest in peace, did have a vision of it. So this friend of his was in the screening room. There was Stallone, Sasha, Bill Conti, Erwin Winkler, Chartoff, you know, we were like all there. This little man stands up and he says, he was a friend of John Avelson's. He said very quietly, spoke very quietly. He said, John, you have a special film here. John, you have a great film here. And his voice kept going up like a decibel. John, you're going to be nominated for an Oscar for this film. John, you're going to win the Oscar as Best Director, and this film is going to win as Best Film. And he's practically screaming by now. If you do one little thing, and we're all going, what? <laughs> and the guy said, excuse my language, but he said, get rid of that fucking song. And we got the job. And the song was written by Frank Stallone. And it's in the film. I mean, in the film, in another place, if I'm not mistaken. But it's also on the soundtrack. And I really like the song. But nothing, nothing on the planet could compare with Bill Conti doing ba 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 ba. And because you saw that with the black name coming across the screen. And it was just, it took your breath away. And we, you know, we, who knew? I mean, none of us knew. So they, they came to my house. And we're sitting at my piano, and Bill Conti sits down at my piano and goes, ba 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 And I say to myself, oh, my God, what are we going to do with that? And everybody leaves. And I go into the shower. And all of a sudden, the film is running through my head, and I know exactly. I can see him running. I can see him climbing the steps. I can see him, you know, drinking the yolks and blah, 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 blah. And I think to myself, oh, my God, I know what this is about. I know what this life is about in the film. And I call Bill Conti. And I say, Bill, I know what life is about. I know what the film's about. I know what the song's about. And I'm in the shower. And he says, where are you? And I go, I'm in the shower. Because that's when you can bring your phone in. This is years ago. And he said, are you, are you with someone? I said, Bill. I'm Scorpio. If I was with somebody, would I be calling you? And he said, Carol, do me a favor. Give me the line before you electrocute yourself. And <laughs> the line was, can fly now. Because at that moment, he could do anything. He could go the distance. If he tried hard, he could win. He could. And when, when John Avelson had him on those steps and put him in slow motion, he could even fly. He could do anything any of us set our minds to doing. I don't know 
music theory or you know the the real intricacies of what you know but i've always appreciated just the way that those lyrics and the that chorus plays against that rocky theme it almost feels like they're like two individual themes that are brought together to complement one another and it just works so well well we wrote an entire lyric there was an entire lyric but john Appleton, in his wisdom realized that he only wanted to punctuate trying hard getting strong gonna fly so there's like really couplets they were like little couplets you know gonna fly now flying high now gonna fly 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 i sang on that we had no money it was an eighteen thousand dollar budget that we had i made five hundred dollars up front and in my documentary that's being done about me uh they interviewed erwin winkler and they said well why did you hire her and he said because she was cheap <laughs> I mean, it wasn't being rude. It's just we had no money. The whole budget was $998,000. He knew that the importance of that was to punctuate. You know, otherwise, you need the words to say what we're all thinking. So when it said, going to fly, 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 you felt, I mean, I saw men crying and standing and screaming. You felt like you could fly. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I went to see Creed 2 the other I day. I hear Rocky like, was in it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that song is there, and it just it brings back those feelings from when I saw, I think I saw Rocky 2 in the theater. And, yeah, people were standing and cheering and chanting Rocky's name. And when he when that song comes on, it just takes you to a whole other place. Well, people were telling me that, you know, I haven't seen it because – even though I'm a member of the Oscars, I've been so busy and, you know, with Surfer and then with the documentary about my life. So I haven't had a chance to go see it, but I've had people tell me that it's one of the highlights of the film. And they say that Creed 2 is good. Look, there's never going to be another Rocky. Why? It was another time. There's never going to be another Gone with the Wind. There's never going to be another Casablanca. It is what it is. They're iconic. You know, they're legendary. And that that's not saying that Creed is not good. I liked Creed 1, but I but there was something Rocky had. He was such a schlepper pepper, such a, you know, a schlub. And here he, I mean, he had such heart. He had such heart. And Taya is a very, very good friend of mine. Yo, Adrian! You know, <laughs> not a lot of ladies in Rocky if you get down to it. So you made $500 off of writing that. I hope that you've made a little bit more off that song as the years have gone by. Millions. Let's just leave it at that. I bought my house. I'm glad Thank to hear you. that. Because you always, you always hear about musicians just getting screwed over by the system. So I'm glad that that wasn't the case. No, we did not. We were very lucky. I mean, you know, we, we've all, you know, shared in, in the beauty of, of what has become legendary in, in a sense. I mean, it's just, do you know that it's Kim Jong Un's favorite song, the North Korean dictator? You can look it up. He loves it. <laughs> I mean, God almighty. Of all the gin joints, what's that saying in Casablanca? Of all the gin joints, you have to walk into mine. Of all the songs on the planet, he had to pick mine. <laughs>
but I'm curious when it comes to something like uh, like Looking for Mr. Goodbar or Zuma Beach or some of these films, are you are they calling you in and saying, Carol, we want you to write a song for this or these songs that already exist that they're then saying we want to use your song for this particular scene or how is that working? No, uh, Looking for Mr. Goodbar was written to, to be eligible for an Oscar in in music. You must must be expressly written for the film. It cannot be an existing song. It has to be written for the film. Don't ask to stay until tomorrow was uh, written for the film. I mean, Richard Brooks, who was a very famous director, um, he did Elmer Gantry and then, you know, many, many, many. I think he won the Oscar a couple times. He, um, I, I saw him up at Hefner's. Um, I used to go up to have, you know, because Barbie's my best friend, and we were, I was very good friends with, with Hef. Not in the biblical sense, but very good friends with him, and um, he really respected my work. And Richard Brooks was up there, and um, he was like, almost like real craggy, real craggy looking guy. You can look him up on the internet. Interesting face, I mean, great rugged face. And he, he once said to me, he sort of cornered me, and, and he said, Have you ever seen Rocky without the music? And I went, yeah. <laughs> Before we put the music to it, Richard, Mr. Brooks. And he sort of laughed. And the next thing I know, I got hired to do Looking for Mr. Goodbar, but, which I think, knock on wood, is one of my best works. And I think I should have been nominated for an Oscar, but I wasn't. So you just, you know, lick your wounds and go on. But he um, he shredded the script at night. Nobody knew what the next days were. I mean, he was very weird. Um, he had a great line uh, that he um, had about the film called, don't, don't love me, just make love to me. But you could not use that line in the song. Okay? Not allowed to use it. And the uh, I know, it was strange. And... Um, so I was, I got the gig, and as we say, and I was with my ex-boyfriend. Well, he's passed away, but Robert Culp, I spy Robert Culp, and he was my boyfriend. In fact, I wrote the title of the song on his arm because I couldn't find a piece of paper. And the title by Marlena Shaw, who, you know, did quite well, was called Don't Ask to Stay Until Tomorrow because that said it without saying his words. Same concept. You know, don't love me, just make love to me. Don't ask to stay until tomorrow. So the concept was similar. And he just flipped out over the song. I, I presented it on Friday, and it was in the film on Monday. But the one that gets a lot of comments is Orca, the Dino De Laurentiis, Orca the Killer Whale. And it's become, according to the American Film Institute, it's um, it's considered a cult classic, CC. <laughs> Because, but I wrote it because I'm a scuba diver. Barbie's my dive buddy. Um, I wrote it from the point of view of the whale. I know that sounds weird, but because I spend so much time in the water and with porpoises, I have to do my dolphin call for you at the end. But the bottom line is, I, I really, I, I, I sense these mammals. I really do. So, if you knew the film, you you know what happened. If if you had seen the film. And it's a, it's a very tragic moment in the film, what happens and what the male orca does. And um, so I wrote that lyric 
in my mind of what I thought the orca was feeling. And it's called My Love, Comma, We Are One. And he ends up killing Richard Harris at the end. Which I kind of think Richard Harris deserves that. Right. But, you know, he harpooned the, the female orca and, uh, and she was pregnant and they both died. And the male, which was one of the best scenes, I remember this because after I saw the film and I wrote the song, I think that's where I came up with the idea of writing it from his point of view. The, the male orca, almost like a camera, of course we use cell phones today, but camera, he took like a, you know, like a, like you would take a, a, a picture, bump, bump, you know, like with a camera, you know how you hear the snap. You saw the eye of the whale go click, click as he imprinted Richard Harris into his mind and followed him around the world. How did you get involved with uh, Surfer Teen Confronts Fear? Well, I've known Dr. Douglas Burke forever. I mean, he's been trying to teach me um, Einstein's theory of relativity for <laughs> about 10 years. <laughs> because, you know, he's like a genius. I mean, he's like this physicist. And um, he teaches at USC. I mean, he's unbelievable. I mean, it, it, it's like a renaissance man. He's always wanted to do this film, you know, about the, you know, his son and and what happened to him, and 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 with a religious concept to it, et cetera, et cetera. So he came over and he said uh, he loved Orca. I think that might have been the film that made him want to to use me to write with him. Do you know what I'm saying? So he and Alex had a great guitar riff. Uh, not much of a melody, but great riff. You know, uh, something really brilliant. And they came over and they, I saw, I watched the movie and I thought, this is very bizarre. This is quite unique. This is different, <laughs> you know. But look, hey, many great films have gone that route. You know what I'm saying? And Bill Conti always said to me, Carol, treat everything as if it were Rocky. You never know. So they came over and they played me the th- the the little uh, the riff, and I watched the movie. And I had the movie running through my head, like I did with Rocky and Orca and all of them. I never get any sleep. And I went upstairs. I have uh, I endorsed Kawhi pianos so i was downstairs but i ran upstairs to my other Kauai because they were still downstairs and i sort of played the thing on the on my piano upstairs and i i knew what the words were i knew what they wanted to say what is the translation of this melody that they have come up with what are they trying to put into words that's how i look at it almost like how do i translate english to french how do i translate music to lyric, because I write music. On The Rescuers, I wrote the music and the lyric. And that's where I came up with the title, Go It Alone, because but that the father will still be by his side. But in essence, he has to build up, he has to get past his fears and to ride the wave. So it's called Go It Alone, in parentheses, Ride the Wave. And I played it for one of the most prolific songwriters, and I'm she's one of my dearest friends, Diane Warren. And Diane heard it, and she went. So then, oh, Alex came over, and they he said they said we want you to sing it. And I went, what? And they said no, because I would be singing what I had written, the lyric to the melody. I had I had been singing the song to show them the song. 
said, no, 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 we want you, we want you. So I went, okay. So I spoke with my manager, and he said, you know, he worked out whatever he worked out. And uh, they came over to record me, and it was a 26-year-old, Alex Hughes. And he's like 20, yeah, he's, well, how do you call them, millennials, millenniums? I can't even pronounce the word. Like, he kept saying, do you mind doing another take? Do you mind doing another take? And I'm professional enough, because I went through this with Phil Spector. Uh, it's like, fine, you know, until my voice gives out, I can be here all day. And they got the sound they wanted. So I played it for Diane, and I sent it to her, and she went, wow, oh, my God, you sound just like Debbie Harry of the, of the 80s. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> So then I played it for Marco uh, Beltrami, who's one of our top composers. And he went, oh, my God, you sound like Janis Joplin. And I go, oh, my God. It's wonderful. I'm having so much fun with it. And I think it captured the meaning of what the film is about. Because that's the importance of when you're writing for music for film, songs for film. What are they trying to say? Then you got to deal with the producer, the director, and if there's another composer, and blah, 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 blah. And the singer. You know, it goes on and on and on. you about the documentary that's being made about you i can't say a lot about it it's all about let's put it this way there are so many skeletons in my closet that if i were to open the door of it they would be jumping over each other to get out okay (laughs) so i had to talk about all my skeletons it's all about the loves of my life because i've had fabulous love affairs uh it's about my music obviously and my life, because my life is my music, and my music is my life. And it's it will be done at the end of the year. I found a wonderful, wonderful director who did, they came to play, which was about Van Clyburn, and he won a lot of awards, Alex Rotaro, and he's an up-and-coming director, and he's been doing documentaries. And then he did the uh, Shakespeare High, which was on Showtime, with Kevin Spacey before Kevin Spacey, whatever imploded. So the bottom line is, um, he's the director and Chip Rosenblum, 
I told him the story. I don't want to give the whole thing away. It's not just my life. It, it, it stems around an important event that happened in, that happened to just also involve Elvis and what happened. And I don't want to give it away, but, um, he just went ballistic over the idea and uh, he put up the money and yeah. And it's, um, it's almost done. The first cut was delivered around Thanksgiving. So I'm going to give thanks. I hope that everybody loved it and it should be, you know, out next year. That's, you know, I'm praying. I mean, we'll see. They have a couple different titles and I don't know which one they're going to go with. And, uh, I'm just the talent. <laughs> it's just my life, you know, and that's about it. And oh, by, I didn't talk about one that I really should talk about. When I was going with Robert Culp, I wanted him to feel a certain way about me. And he did. And I felt a certain way about him. And I wrote a song with David Shire called With You I'm Born Again, which has now gone on to become one of the great love songs of our time, according to ASCAP. And it's Billy Preston and Sarita. Come bring me your softness. Comfort me through all this madness. And I, I really, really wanted Robert to feel that way about me. So when I finished the song, I wrote it in like 22 minutes. It was like almost like God, you know, I, I'm not a religious fanatic, but it was almost like God wrote the song. I can't explain it. It was, it was coming so fast. I, I almost couldn't get all the words onto the paper. So I, when, <laughs> The second line of the song is a very bizarre line, and David Shire, who's a fanatic about everything being perfect, you know, we talked about it, and I said, you know, I don't think the the line stands. That's the word that David used to use. And the the line, the first and second line is, Come bring me your softness. Comfort me through all this madness. And I thought, you know, maybe I better try and change that and see if I can get a rhyme and whatever. And I told Robert, and he said, Carol, if you change that line, he said, don't tell anybody you wrote it for me. That line will go down as one of the greatest lines. You must not change it. And I didn't. And if you stop to think about it, even today, look what's going on in our world. Come bring me your softness. Comfort me through all this madness. Says it all. And Robert knew it before I knew it. He was so bright, so wonderful, such a great boyfriend, you know. He passed away about four years ago, but we had broken up, but you know, uh, I have great memories of him. Well, Cece, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. This has been really delightful. Good, good, good. I'm glad that, that we talked and that you laughed at some of my jokes. <laughs> Come bring me your softness Comfort me through all this madness Woman, don't you know with you I'm born again Come give me your sweetness Now there's you I was half, not whole 
instead with none. We're back and we're talking about Surfer Teen Confronts Fear. I was surprised when I was thinking about this movie, this isn't the first faith-based surfer movie that I can think of. There's actually Soul Surfer out there, but I haven't watched that one yet. No, neither have I. I mean, I'm kind of fascinated by the faith film as a genre, because in America they do very well. You've got those ones with Kevin Sorbo and Greg Kinnear and like God is Not Dead. Uh, that seem to play to, you know, a certain evangelical crowd. I mean, America is, for all your separation of church and state, quite a religiously conservative country. And, and it plays very well at the box office that they managed to get into the top 10. And then there seems to be also just the really, really bad ones. Like, uh, there's one out there at the moment called the Trump prophecy, which is all about the commander in chief pro- prophecy about a fireman who was told by God that Trump was going to be the next president and he should do like a a, a prayer marathon for him. The, the fact that this film exists blows my mind. And then there's also uh, films like um, uh, Left Behind with Nicolas Cage in uh, and The Rapture Happens. And that was directed by Vic Armstrong, legendary stunt coordinator and stuntman uh, Vic Armstrong. It's terrible, but the fact that that faith-based film genre has enough clout to attract those kind of names is is fascinating to me. Yeah, there's a fantastic podcast called The God-Awful Movies that I listen to. It's one of the very few podcasts that I listen to just because I'm usually too busy studying for this. And it is uh, remarkable. They do what I kind of had hoped to do at one point and just cover Christian movies exclusively. They just covered the Trump prophecy one, and my jaw was on the floor. Trump's very big with the evangelical audience over there, so I guess, you know, it's going to play to that crowd. It's fascinating who would see that as a film, who would finance it, who would star in it. But, I mean, yeah, that just shows, you know, Trump's popularity and who who his base is. It's uh, for all his faults, you know... um, some people seem to think he is a devout man of God, and that fascinates me. So you've mentioned a few times that Surfer Teen Confronts Fear is supposed to be, quote-unquote, the new room. And I know that that's been bandied about for a few films. And I kind of hate when people try to force a movie to be a cult movie. When a film's out like Surfer Teen Confronts Fear is calling it the new room is going to attract a certain audience like myself. However, a film becomes a cult film like the room over time and by people discovering it naturally. The room didn't become the room for like three years. It, it built up like a core group of fans in, in LA and they told their friends and it wasn't until there was like an entertainment weekly article i think in 2008 called the crazy cult of the room that that really exploded you know worldwide about what the room is and films like miami connection and samurai cop they they weren't uh big at the time they were massive flops it's only that they're recently rediscovered and build up that cult audience so i get why uh trying to ride the back of films like 
the room makes good marketing sense. It makes people like me want to see and then screen it. But for a film to become a cult phenomenon, that can only be gauged with time. And whether people remember this film five years from now, better or worse, is something that I can't predict and it's something that no one can predict. Are there movies out there that you've seen that don't have the cult audience that you think that they should? I'm a big fan of Deep Rising, and I know that Kino Lorber just did a Blu-ray of it. And it's probably Stephen Summers' best film, and he did The Mummy and Van Helsing and G.I. Joe. But it's just a nice, you know, action film with monsters. Treat Williams is the hero, and it's just got such an awesome lineup of character actors like Wes Studi and Cliff Curtis and Jason Fleming and Famke Janssen and William Atherton and Digimon Honzu. It's it's great. It's just a nice little 90-minute action film with sea monsters. And I love that. And not many people are a fan of it. There are other ones like Raw, Tippy Hedren's Lion, Tiger, uh, Passion Project where 70 cast and crew members were maimed over the the film's four-year project time. Um, yeah, there, there are loads, but they're, they're films that are kind of build their audience you know, over time. But I wish more people saw Deep Rising. Have you ever seen After Last Season? No, I haven't. I highly recommend After Last Season. Uh, one of my friends, Jim Donahue, brought that to my attention. And yeah, it's uh, pretty remarkable. The The... It's kind of in that um, Birdemic school as far as really, really cheap sets. And just there's a, a moment where someone's getting an MRI and the MRI machine is actually made out of like just pieces of paper that are taped together. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of like um, Plan 9 from Outer Space where the plane cockpit is just a, a curtain shower behind them. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. And then I wanted to ask you, because you've done this a lot. I mean, I've interviewed some people where I've known, like, okay, I'm not going to engage with this person politically or ideologically, those kind of things, where I just kind of want to have somebody on and say, like, okay, say your piece. You know, what's going on here? Let's let's talk about, you know, um, Duck Dynasty and, and these kind of things. Let's talk about an American Carol. When it comes to that, I kind of know how to talk to people, but you've done this with so many filmmakers who have come through uh, the Bristol Bad Film Club. I mean, the name of the place is the Bristol Bad Film Club, so I imagine that when people speak to you, they kind of know what they're getting into. It all depends. Um, so with Douglas Burke, the person running the PR put him in touch with me saying, you know, Time and Runs a Genre Film Club. And when I spoke to him, I, w I wanted to be very upfront. I was like, look, I run something called the Bristol Bad Film Club. We show these kind of films, and I know people laugh at your film, and I just want to put my cards on the table and tell you this. And he was like, no, that's fine. Some people laugh at it. Some people cry. That's fine. And he seemed to be very aware of how his film is viewed. Uh, when I first dealt with Tommy Wiseau, I didn't mention anything about the Bristol Bad Film Club. Same with other uh, directors who've got new films out where they might play a twin of themselves that we did the UK premiere for, Neil Breen. When I approached him, I was like, look, I, I run a, a genre film night and I want to do a gala screening. And I did. I didn't advertise it as a Bristol Bad Film Club event, but, you know, I have my audience here. Some people knew that it was me. 
putting it on, but I did not bring that up in any of the correspondence. It was like, I'm just doing a gala screening of your films. What I discovered is some directors are very aware of how their films are perceived. Stephen E. D'Souza, who wrote Die Hard, Commando and the Running Man, I reached out to him once just to kind of talk about the trials of making Street Fighter, and he was more than happy just to go into minute detail on the trouble he kind of had making that film and the clashes he had with the studio over the ratings and Capcom who wanted to keep adding characters. So he was very much kind of, look, I know people hate my film, but here's what happened. And that's great. I love that. And then there are other directors such as, uh, I interviewed the director of Mac and Me, and he also did Tammy and the T-Rex and uh, Ice Pirates. And he, again, he just kind of went, look, it's really hard making films. Uh, this is the, ch- here are the challenges that I faced. And it's not easy, but again, he is very well aware of how his films have perceived. That's uh, Stuart Raphael, um, the director of Mac and Me and Tammy and the T-Rex. And then there are others who, you know, have a reputation of being a little bit touchy. And so you, you don't bring it up. You just go, look, I like your film. I feel it's very underrated. I'd like to do a screening of it. And then you don't go into the particulars. I, I tailor my approach depending on the person. If I kind of get the impression that they'd be very cool just to kind of talk about what went wrong and uh, the perception of the film, I will more than happily reach out. If I've heard on the grapevine that they're a little bit touchy, I'll leave it and just say, look, I run a genre film organization. Your film's a genre film. I want to help it reach a bigger audience. Can I show it? Because no one else is. Yeah, I guess Neil Breen is somebody that I would love to hear more people talk about. I mean, I have some friends that are aware of Neil Breen, but not a lot, though it seems like his stuff is getting out there a little bit more. It's kind of like Frederick Douglass. He's being recognized more and more. I would have thought Frederick Douglass is always kind of known more and more in America for what he did during the abolition movement. Oh, no, just recently. Oh, really? Oh, well, Trump still thought he was alive. Look, I don't want to offend anyone in your audience, but the man's a plum. It, it, it's, it's a strange one. Some people are, are very sensitive. I've heard that about Neil Breen. He truly believes he's making great films. I've spoken to Neil several times, and he you know, feels his films are getting better and better, and he's a little bit, not ashamed, but kind of like he doesn't want people to see his earlier stuff. He thinks it's you know, rougher and the new stuff's better. I personally prefer, think his first film, Double Down, is his best. I, I prefer it over Pass Through and um, Twisted Pair. I think it is him getting his vision over in a much more, uh, not coherent, still a Neil Breen film, but truthful manner, whereas his new films, he's, uh, you know, he's got a bunch of toys and CGI, and I think that kind of is a bit more smoke and mirrors, whereas I like, I like my Neil Breen, you know, uncut and unfiltered, if you will. Yeah, I think my favorite is I Am Here Now. Yes, where he's the angel... Or, or devil come to earth. Yeah, um, mummy space Jesus is well, usually I refer Jesus, to. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I wanted to ask you while I had you here, how is In Search of the Last Action Heroes going? Great. So I was in LA a couple of months ago uh, for 10 days, and I was doing back-to-back interviews for this documentary I'm working on, In Search of the Last Action Heroes. I'm making it with Oliver Harper, who's a YouTuber that specializes in doing retrospectives of action films. And... Um, while I was in L.A., I was interviewing the likes of Stephen E. D'Souza, Vernon Wells, Bill Duke, Cynthia Rothrock, uh, 
Sheldon Latiche, who wrote lots of Jean-Claude Van Damme's films, James Bruner, who wrote loads of Chuck Norris's films, um, Michael Jai White. I think it was like 22 interviews I did while I was out there. And it's all for this kind of documentary where we're telling the story of what led to the rise of, you know, these big macho action films in the 80s and how they evolved going into the 90s. And also, interestingly, the the role of the R-rated action film today. So people kind of go, oh, you know, we don't get R-rated action films anymore. Everything's kind of sanitized. And it's true, we don't get the 100 million R-rated films like Total Recall or Terminator 2, but you still get Deadpool and Deadpool 2, and they are R-rated blockbusters. And you also get films like John Wick that are, you know, spectacularly violent. And we still get films like The Raid, but that's it, like, you know, that's not an American action film. And to a certain extent, I know not everyone likes them, but the Fast and the Furious franchise is the biggest action franchise in the world. And it's a living personification of 80s action films. Gravity does not apply in these films. People can drive cars through the front of planes. It's nothing but oiled up muscles. It's full on machoism, one-liners, homoerotic undertones. Sure, it's not as violent as Arnie gunning down everything, but apart from that, I'd, I'd say the Fast and the Furious films are the closest things we have to action film, 80s action films these days, and I bloody love them. So while I was out there, I was also talking to Brian Tyler, who um, does the films for the Fast and Furious films, and we're talking about you know action film soundtracks and how they've evolved over the ages. So yeah, at the moment, uh, in search of the last action heroes is finishing up its Indiegogo campaign, which people can still uh, give to to get Blu-rays and a whole host of other um, not prizes, but you know uh, perks. Uh, and yeah, we're, we're hoping to get like a first cut done by April and then ship all the perks out by May. So it's going well. We're just in the post-production phase and trying to nail down a couple more interviews. Um, but yeah, it's going great. But it's hard work. Did I read that you're involved with another documentary as well? Uh, so the production team I'm working on, they're working on one um, about horror films in the 1980s and how that exploded through VHS and everything like that. I am not working on that one because horror is not my speciality. I helped set up a few interviews on that though um, so I've got a very background role in that. I'm not really working on that uh, production but I have spoken to the executive producer Robin Block and we are planning maybe doing one on how sci-fi films through the years have influenced technology today. So that's in the very very preliminary uh, idea stage at the moment. Well, where can people keep up with you in the Bristol Bad Film Club? So I'm on Twitter, at Time and Seng, and also at the other BBFC, which is the Bristol Bad Film Club's Twitter handle. Uh, we're on Facebook, Bristol Bad Film Club. Um, and you can find out, if you're in the UK or in Bristol, about our latest events at www.bristolbadfilmclub.co.uk. And there's also a link on there to where you can buy my book, Born to be Bad, Talking to the Greatest Villains in Action Cinema, where I tracked down all the actors that played iconic bad guys in 80s action films. 
Well, thank you again, Ty, for coming on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.